0: That smile that you see on the outside that I'm somewhat known for and famous for comes from a place deep inside of me, and I really am fundamentally happy.
1: Olympic gold medal gymnast Mary Lou Retton. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, December 21st is many things. It's the winter solstice, of course, the first day of winter. It was on this day 50 years ago that Elvis met Richard Nixon at the White House. Listen to my last episode of Now I've Heard Everything to get the full story on that. But December 21st is also National Short Girl Appreciation Day. And ever since the 1984 Summer Olympics, one of America's favorite, in fact, one of the world's favorite short girls is gymnast Mary Lou Retton. She took the 84 Olympics in Los Angeles by storm. Representing the United States of America. was the first American woman ever to win the all-around gold medal in gymnastics. She also won two silvers, two bronze. She was America's darling. That boundless energy, that infectious smile. Mary Lou Retton was everywhere. Now, fast forward. I met her in the spring of 2000 when she wrote a book, a motivational book actually, on how to achieve happiness. So here now, from 2000 one of America's favorite short girls, Mary Lou Retton.
0: Why did I write this book? It comes from the simple question that I get asked every single day of my life, and I call it the smile question. And it really happens every single day I leave my home for 16 years, because I won the medal 16 years ago. And the smile question is not always phrased the same way to me. Sometimes it's, yes, boy, you have a beautiful smile, and sometimes they comment on my teeth and ask me if they're capped or I bleach them, (laughs) and some are pretty blunt about it, and they don't, you know, beat around the bush. It's, are you for real, and why are you always so happy, you know, and almost to the point where I get on their nerves, and I always tell them, because I consider myself a pretty honest and, and trusting person, and I tell them, that smile that you see on the outside, that I'm somewhat known for and famous for, comes from a place deep inside of me. And I really am fundamentally happy. And I think that I can share and coach people to find that happiness if they choose to be. There's a lot of miserable people running around this world, but I think they choose to be miserable. You can choose to be happy. It takes hard work. That's true. And there's a lot of hard work in this Ooh, book. Oh, yes. Yes, it is. And people say, you know, well, share you're Mary Lou Retton, You should be happy. You're famous. You got a gold medal, you <laughs> know. And those things don't make you happy. And I share for the first time, really, in, in a public way, because you really put your heart and soul into a book, Well, at least I did the last year, some darker times in my life. Now, they're not scandalous. They're dark for me. They're not scandalous, and I'm very proud of that fact. But of having knee surgery, going six weeks before the Olympic Games and having doctors say there's no way I could do it, there's not enough time, to, you know, after the Olympics and the birth of my second daughter. It was um a very traumatic birth, and she was very ill and very sick. What I learned through that process. Um, My whole college days, how I wanted so badly to go to college and how I wanted so badly just to be... So called normal, and I wasn't, and it was just not a good experience for me. So I share all those with the readers. I wanted, I needed Bill to experience life. I've had uh, several people for years come up to me and say, Write a book for us, write a book. And I never felt it was time. You know, I was 16 when I was in the Olympics when I won and was thrown into this spotlight. And I hadn't experienced life. You know, I was barefoot in a leotard my entire life. And now I've felt that I've experienced life a little bit. I've experienced some of those darker times and i'm thirty two years old I'm married almost ten years. I have two beautiful daughters, one and another child on the way. I can talk about some things and share with my readers what I learned through the process.
1: Wow, bless your heart, and it is a it is a learning process you describe in this book, isn't it
0: it is it I think happiness is. It's working, you have to earn it, and it does not come easy. And I list seven things in the book, and I call them gateways. They're not chapters, they're gateways, because I I just envisioned it a pathway more, the the journey of going through each one. I talk about family, I talk about faith, um, relationships, attitude, discipline, health, and laughter. Those are the seven that I've gone through to find that true happiness. And I think happiness can be permanent.
1: Now, why, let me skip a couple of them and go mm-hmm. right to discipline, if i right. Yes. Why do people think that's a naughty word or a bad word or a thing that you, you're disciplined if you've done something wrong?
0: And they do, um, because I think people think they have to sacrifice. And sacrifice is not a very happy word, but sacrifice is so necessary in creating and reaching that goal and reaching that dream. I mean, I have kind of two different Stages in my life. I have pre Olympic and I have post Olympic. Discipline is equally important in the before the Olympic days as it is now. You know, disciplining and, and uh, getting the discipline from my coach, and now I'm a coach to my kids. And how uh, all you parents know out there how difficult it is to be consistent on disciplining your kids. Oh, I mean, that's just one aspect of discipline. <laughs> discipline, you know, to get up and go to work every morning when we would much rather stay home and play with our kids, you know. I mean, there's what I was learning and what I was taught in my very long athletic career, it all goes into play with what I'm doing now as a working mom and and career woman.
1: So supposing some evening, after dinner and the dishes are done and girls are sitting in front of the TV and Mm -hmm. they're watching and, and suddenly... Mark McGuire comes up on the on the screen, and he hits a home run, and Shayla says, you know, I'd, I'd like to be a baseball player when I grow up. <laughs> now, so, so are you and Shannon going to look at each other like your parents? <laughs> yeah, that, that's good, honey. <laughs> yeah,
0: probably, yes. She's a girly girl. I mean, she, likes fixes her hair, doesn't like to sweat and all that. I mean, if my, my three-year-old said that, I'd say, uh-oh, honey, we're going to have the first woman in Major League Baseball. See, see, that,
1: see that's my point. I mean, parents... You know, we all want great things for our kids and we want our kids to have great ambition, but unfortunately, some of our parents, some of us as parents, we've been through some of those dark times that we we know how mean and nasty the world is. You don't get everything you always dream of. How do you keep that flame of hope alive in an eight year old without, you also have to keep her kind of realistic saying, honey, yeah. Not everyone's going to win the gold medal in the Olympics.
0: Oh, absolutely. And my parents really taught off. There were five of us in our family, the five kids, and me being the youngest. And they absolutely taught us that. And I will teach my kids that. Your goals and your passion have to be in reality. Yeah, absolutely. I'm four foot nine. I know if I had a dream to be in the NBA, that ain't going to happen. I mean, it, it wasn't. I know that. That's that's in real terms. That's the real world. But I think that we've got to keep the world open. It's got to be just an open coloring book for our kids. You can't squash the passion for them. I mean, I used to lay in bed at night when I was seven and eight years old, dreaming of going to the Olympics, just fantasizing of what it would be like to stand up there on the podium and have a gold medal placed around my neck. And, you know, the same thing I actually experienced, you know, nine years later. But I used to dream about that. And I had a lot of people Uh, Most of the people in my life at that time were very negative and naysayers. I was not the typical body type of a gymnast. Um, Gymnasts are usually longer and leaner, cute little pixie ponytails. And, you know, if you go back and look at some of the media articles, they (laughs) they described me as a (laughs) fireplug. You know, I'm short and stocky and muscular. I had to break through that barrier. I come from a tiny little coal mining town in West Virginia, which was not the hotbed of gymnastics. Um, so, you know, I had limits placed on me, a lot of limits. But I was able to see through those. I was able to break through them. And what I teach my kids and what I want everybody out there to know is that if you have a dream, if you have a passion within reality, believe in your abilities. You can. You can achieve it. I am living example of it.
1: Now, you understood visualization long before you knew what the word visualization meant.
0: I did. Exactly. I really didn't even know what I was doing. I would use that a lot during competitions and gymnastics competitions. There's a lot of warm up and then you sit around and you wait. And we're a lot on the sidelines and it's important for us to keep loose and, and we would, you know, do our routines physically very limit in a limited space. But visually, I would visualize my routines in my head, doing it that perfect routine, you know. Not falling off, but doing the perfect routine, getting the 10.
1: Even to the point where you visualized that, that world-famous photo now? I absolutely did. You knew exactly you were going to look like that.
0: <laughs> That's what I had in my head, and I didn't really know it was going to happen till I was in the air. But absolutely, it, it calmed my nerves. It gave me that confidence. If I wasn't able to physically get out there on the equipment, which I was not, get out there and do it. Visualization was the next best thing. You just, it gave you the confidence.
1: So now, which makes you more nervous? Going before the Olympics, where you were in, like you said, years of work comes down to three seconds. Right. Literally. Or being asked by Billy Graham to come to one of his crusades and talk before a stadium full of people and a nationwide, worldwide audience, television audience in the millions about your faith.
0: Yeah. the Billy Graham. No question <laughs> about it. No question about it. I, uh, I've been a Christian for as long as I can remember and it was something that was always a private matter to me. If you and I, Bill, were in a one-on-one situation years ago, it came up, absolutely, I'm a Christian, believe in God, most important thing in my life, but I never on a public way, on, on that public platform, shared that with people. And I think one of the reasons is that I was thrown into this spotlight at such a young age, I was 16 years old, all the managers and advisors that started to surround me and giving me all the... The advice, and one piece of of advice I always remember was, don't ever talk on politics and don't ever talk on religion because you can make enemies immediately. And sweet little Mary Lou wasn't supposed to step on anybody's toes. You know, everybody loved Mary Lou. So I lived my life that way. Well, I'm not 16 anymore. I'm 32 years old, and I'm a mother of two beautiful daughters, and I just need to stand for something. And I felt it was time for me... And this, th- what's interesting, this was totally in God's plan. This was coming to me five years. My my oldest daughter is five, and that's when it started to come to light to me that Mary Lou, you need to be more public with this. You need to share your faith in a public way. And sure enough, I got the call from Billy Graham. You know, and this was totally God testing me. Let's see if you're serious about it or not. And he asked me to give my Christian testimony, and I'd never done that before. I mean, not even at my local church that we attend thinking, great, I'm going to give my first Christian testimony in front of the world, you know? I was well, see, very nervous. We, we need
1: to tell people uh, public testimony is not something Catholics do.
0: No, exactly. <laughs> and I was born and raised a devout <laughs> Catholic. That's exactly right. It was just something that you kind of kept to yourself. You didn't force it or push it in, on, on people. And it, um, it was something that and I go through it all in in the, my faith chapter and, and what I was feeling and I was so proud after I did that.
1: But you also say in the book that you realized before you did that that it would set you down a path from which it would not be possible for you to come back.
0: Oh, that's absolutely right.
1: That has happened?
0: Oh, absolutely. Once you take that path and stand for Christianity... You can't go back. And I don't want to go back because you know what? I have no reason to. You've been outed. <laughs> yes, that's right. I'm outed. That's exactly right. And, and what, you know, something that's important in the book as well that I, that I say, being raised a devout Catholic, I now worship in a Baptist church, which was probably the hardest thing I ever had to tell my mother. Um, but I'm not a Catholic. I'm not a Baptist. I'm just a Christian. I just choose to worship in a church that has a Baptist name. Um, and I'm, I haven't looked back. But it is a path that I live. That's how we live our life. And I don't have anything to hide. Let me ask
1: you to to kind of step back and give us a wide-angle lens on things. Mm -hmm. Is there any kind of melancholy that comes with once being literally the best in the whole world athletically at what you do? And now, you know, hey, at 32, you're in fantastic shape. Mm -hmm. But I suspect, correct me if I'm wrong, that you probably wouldn't be able to do the routines that you did at 16 with the great... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, <laughs> with, with with the same level of, of expertise, is there is there any kind of sadness that comes with knowing that that was then and this is now something different?
0: Not at all, not for me. I mean, if you ask that question to somebody else, it might be. I'm not one to live in the past. I always knew my goal, Bill, was to go to the Olympics, never to win the Olympics. I mean, to, my goal was to represent the United States, maybe bring home a medal, but never to win the all around. I mean, that's queen bee in gymnastics. So I, you know, I just had surpassed all my goals and dreams and just as a child, and I wanted to leave the sport as a champion. I wanted people to remember me as a winner, not as a struggling athlete that just couldn't give up the sport. I wanted to go to college. I knew I always wanted to have a family, um, you know, get married and have a family, which I'm doing now. I never dealt with that. A lot of athletes do. But no, life is not boring. Life is what you make of it, you know? One thing I do miss is that competition phase you go through. You know, the, the journal is pumping and the butterflies. I miss that nervous feeling. But you have to create it in other ways in your life. And I'm doing that.
1: But now you're the, the elder stateswoman. You, uh, you you appear before groups of athletes in 96. You tell yes. a very poignant story you tell in that book about meeting with these very nervous young women oh, who are it. about to do what you did.
0: Yes. Um, that, was, that was quite an honor for me. It was literally weeks before the 96 Olympic team even went to Atlanta for the Olympics. And, of course, they won the gold medal there. Mm -hmm. They were being touted as the best team we've ever sent. And they were the most talented team the United States will ever, I think, will ever send to an Olympic Games. And they were so nervous. They were all so nervous. I got a call from the Gymnastics Federation saying, Would you come to the Carolinas? They're in a training camp. Would you give them a short little pep talk kind of surprise? I said, Absolutely. So I hopped on a plane, and I was there the next morning. And I walked out. They had just finished the workout, and they were totally taken by surprise. And the first thing I asked them was, Anybody scared? And I got a few nods. Nobody really said anything. I said, Is anybody really nervous? And I got a few tears pressure was immense on them. I mean, it was just incredible. And I just told them, I said, Guys, if anybody knows what you're going through, it's me. All I can say is when you walk in that George Dome and you see those flags raising and those chants of USA, take every second of it in because every bit of it is for you. And you have trained your entire lifetime for this one shiny moment in time. You are prepared. You have the years and the work and the hours put into it. You are ready. If you weren't prepared, I'd say, you have good reason to be nervous. <laughs> and in fact, if you're not nervous, though, you know, something's wrong. You have mm-hmm. to have that little bit of nervousness. But you have a change, you're ready, and go and enjoy it. And, of course, they went on to, to make history and bring home the, the first team gold medal in history.
1: And you know what? Someday, one of them is going to be in a grocery store, and somebody's going to ask them for their autograph on a <laughs> banana. And they're, they're going to look at them disappointed. they to say, I I thought you were Mary Lou Retton. <laughs>
0: You I you're, I know where you're going with that. I have a story of my laughter gateway, and I love the laughter gateway. I think laughter is wonderful. In fact, that was the first thing that made me fall in love with my husband. He made me laugh. I'm in the grocery store, and I believe that if you can't make fun of yourself, well you're gonna live a pretty miserable life, especially me being four foot nine. I've heard all the short jokes in the book. <laughs> But I'm in the grocery store, this was a few years ago, and this woman comes up. I'm in the produce section, and yes, I go to the grocery store just like everybody else. And this woman is frantic. Oh my God, I can't believe it! You know, just frantic. She could not believe it was me. And, you know, I'm kind of, you know, feeling pretty good about myself. Because it's been years after the Olympics, and she comes up to me, and she's so frantic, she couldn't find anything for me to write on. So she grabs a banana. Right. Which I have no idea what she's going to do when this thing turned black. But so I write my name on this. She's like, Oh, thank you so much. And she starts to walk away. And just a few, few steps later, she stops dead in her tracks. She turns around and she's just so deflated and she goes, Oh, I thought you were Dorothy Hamill. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I mean, talk about a crush to the ego. It could have been. I went home and I shared that story with my husband Shannon, and of course he did just what you did, Billy. He just was laughing; he was on the floor laughing, dying, and he, you know, he called me Dorothy for the next week.
1: <laughs> Mary Lou Retton will be fifty-three in January. She lives in Texas. Would you do me a favor? If you liked today's episode, would you tell a friend about? Now I've heard everything. We post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, our Season 2 year-end wrap-up. A look back on some of the many fascinating personalities that you've heard here on Now I've Heard Everything during the past year. Here's a little preview.
0: Good Lord, wouldn't that be terrible if it was a number one hit and you have to sing it forever and ever and you don't even like the song?
1: I certainly think that you have to know uh, where you've been. Uh, If you want to know where you're going I remember when Elvis came out with his first record Heartbreak Hotel Rob Petrie was about my days on the show of shows As a writer, actor on the staff
0: The good songs, the words are a poem Just think of something as simple as uh, My Favorite Things by Rodgers and Hammerstein Right after we came back from the moon There were demonstrations going, anti-establishment demonstrations, and they threw eggs at us.
1: Wendy Williams is a walking exclamation point. There's Stan Lee of
0: Marvel. A lot of the, I guess, the misconception about David Cassidy was I was that sweet, innocent guy that was... That character. People say, "Well, conservative Republican, they're not funny." Always when I was doing Saturday Night Live, like if I did Sally O'Malley, and I was like, "Ladies and gentlemen, I like to kick, stretch, and kick." Anyone who runs for office believes that if the election is only honest, and if the people know me and know all these other characters, surely they will vote for me. I just done the way we were, and. I was offered less money to do the sting. Before I started Mrs. Fields' cookie business, I actually weighed about 25 pounds more.
1: My sense of humor is a little bit off the beaten track, certainly. I'm trying to make everybody laugh at things that basically they find horrifying in real life.
0: Gulligans was sort of a microscopic view of civilization, how we share all kinds of people put together in an unfortunate circumstance.
1: You know, you were always a good friend. You started the day out right for me. Uh, you made me feel good about myself. They
0: come up to me and say, hey, Mel, can you do a porky pig? And I'll say, yeah, please, please not I mean, this, I'm buying stuff.
1: That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson.